Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight, we have a very special guest on Radio Free Mormon. Her name is Lila Tuller. And you may not have heard of Lila Tuller before, but I will let you know that her maiden name is Lila Rector. And she is the daughter of a very famous general authority, at least famous in my day, named Hartman Rector Jr. Now, as I say, I mention that name to a lot of Mormons nowadays, and they go, who? But when I was joining the church back in the late 70s and on into the early 80s, Hartman Rector Jr. was extremely well-known, in fact, extremely popular. Amongst the 70, there were a handful of popular speakers in general conference and in other venues and also writers of books. And one of those was Hartman Rector Jr. The others that I can recall were Von J. Featherstone, Carlos Acey, and of course, Paul H. Dunn. Now, everybody knew the apostles because you have to know the apostles when you're a member of the church. And we know when they speak and we recognize them and their names. But Hartman Rector Jr., never an apostle, but a member of the 70, a very important member of the 70, I was always very happy when he was going to address the audience in general conference because I knew there was going to be a break in the boring talks or something that would be very interesting, very engaging. And Lila, I went back and I listened to a number of your father's talks from general conference in preparation for this interview. And I immediately remembered why it was that he was such a popular speaker because he does not have a Utah accent. He has a Southern accent. Accident, excuse me. That was my accident. He has a southern accent. And um, I found out then that he was from Missouri. Is that, that correct? Is true. Yes. Yes, well, he is. My mother, too. Well, let me just say welcome to uh, the podcast, Lila. We also have Bill Real with us tonight for this interview. And I'm sorry, I just talked right over your thank you. So go ahead. Oh. Welcome to the podcast, Lila. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit? Oh, Bill, Bill Real, you're there, right? Yeah, I'm here and uh, excited to be part of this. Yes. Well, Lila reached out to Bill and me, and uh, she's a listener to Bill's podcast. She's a listener to Radio Free Mormon, and she has a very interesting faith journey that she wants to share with us tonight. And I was hoping to start off, Lila, just with a little bit of background about yourself, your family, your brothers and your sisters, and where you grew up. By the way, we've got two hours for this interview, so we're not going to do a five, six, eight-hour interview. We're just going to go right to the heart of the matter. But as it, at the outset, I did want to talk to you and let you talk about your background, your upbringing in the church with your father, who was a general authority. Okay. Well, um, I was born and raised in Virginia. Um, my dad was working in, in the, uh, the Pentagon at the time in the Department of Agriculture, and we lived in Fairfax, Virginia, which is very close there. Um, so we lived kind of out in the in the rural area, um, in a very woodsy part of the the, uh, the city. And there was a there was a lake just down the street that you know we would swim in and ice skate on in the winter. It was a very we had a large acre lot, and um, I lived outdoors mostly. And we had a very nice. I enjoyed my childhood very much. And um, I had at the time I had six brothers and sisters. Let's see, is that right? Yeah, and because I'm number six, so no, I had five brothers and sisters older than me, and. Um, when my when when I was seven years old, my dad received the call to 
um, be a general authority. And, and so we had to move out west to Salt Lake City at that point. And he was called in 1968. I don't want to zero in and give too many hints about your age, but I did do some background <laughs> research. <Okay. laughs> I think yeah. he was called 1968, uh-huh. and he was called by um, President David O. McKay, who Correct. was still president at the time. I think he passed away in January of 1970. That's right. That's right. It was David O. McKay. Um, my dad had a story he would tell about that, but um, it was very exciting for all of us. I mean, shocking. Um, and of course, I was so young, I didn't really know what was going on <laughs> to the point that, you know, I just knew we were moving away from my home. And, and that was a little bit scary, but exciting because everybody well, else was excited about it. So I thought I should be. And off we went. Can you tell us a story your dad told about being called as a general authority? Yeah, I hope I remember it correctly. He said that he received a phone call from um, Sister Middlemiss. She said, hello, my name is Sister Middlemiss. That was uh, David O. McKay's secretary, his personal secretary. uh Uh-huh. I am am David O. McKay's secretary. And he said that he, he immediately got this panic that he had done something terribly wrong that he was going to be, you know, reprimanded for. And so he got real nervous and she said, um, he would like to schedule an interview with you and we would like to fly you out to Salt Lake City to, to have an interview. So you can imagine he was a little nervous about that, didn't know what was happening. Um, he was, he did work under, at, at the Depart- Department of Agriculture under, um, uh, help me. Um, Ezra Taft Benson. That's right. And, and his best friend was Reed Benson, Ezra's son. So he had that little connection. I'd say that's uh, more the, than a little connection. It was, yeah, it was a pretty big connection. <laughs> and he was a lowly seminary teacher at the time. Um, you know, and he taught, he taught uh, gospel doctrine, I believe, a couple of times. But, I mean, he was a fairly new, he was only, he'd only been a member for about 10 years at the time. Mm-hmm. So pretty, he was fairly young and, um, and green as far as, you know, being aware of things in the church. And so that was an exciting thing for him. There was, an, there was another part that I'm leaving out, but we'll just say, I can't even remember it is why I left it out. But I know there's some little twists there. But so, and we, uh, he went out, flew out and they asked him if he wanted, if he would be willing to serve as a 70 and he said something along the lines of, I have no idea what I'm signing up for, but yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Yeah. And the rest is, I guess, history. I've got a question here. Mm-hmm. Um, to be called in as a general authority, the leadership of the church is placing a lot of trust in that person. What, what was your dad's experience prior to being called in as a 70 that they would have become aware of him or knew at least enough to kind of start to build some of that trust? That's a really good question. And I don't have a good answer. I really think that it had to do with the fact that he knew uh, Reed Benson and Reed and he and um, my dad really hit it off. And he was very charismatic. My, my father has a, um, a personality, just a big personality. He commands the room. He commands attention. He is funny. He is outgoing. He's loud. He is, and I think he just had the charisma and, and the zest and the zeal. He was very excited about missionary work. He was a, like a, a convert time on, on steroids. He was 
so excited about it. And you have to understand, he was drinking, smoking, um, every, you know, doing all of those things. And when the missionaries knocked on his door, actually, he wasn't home. My mom was. But when he heard the story and read the Book of Mormon, he, he just instantly stopped doing all of that. I mean, and we didn't have any caffeine in our home, not even chocolate. He, he, he cut everything out that had caffeine that he knew of. And he was just a very zealous member. And I think maybe they just thought he'd be good for the missionary department, you know, for the, for, for inspiring others to be missionaries. I, I can't think of another reason really. Well, if he worked at the agriculture department under secretary Ezra Taft Benson, I think it's probably fair to say that he made a very, very good impression yeah. on Ezra Taft Benson, who of course had been given leave by the first presidency that he was an apostle and a senior apostle at the time to take this position, this post as secretary of agriculture. And your dad working there must've made a big impression on him enough that he recommended him right. to president McKay to be the next, uh, to fill the next calling in the first quorum of the 70. In fact, there was only one quorum of the 70 at the time. Isn't that right? Yes. Right. So, so that was a big deal. And that was a lifetime calling. Is that correct? That's correct. Right. Um, okay, so now you move out. Uh, can you tell us what it was like to live in a household with a general authority, specifically your dad, Hartman Rector Jr., as your father? Yeah, sure. Well, I told you that his personality was big and that he was a he commanded attention and he kind of ran the place when he was there. Um, but he wasn't there much. That was the biggest um, change that took place. I had been a daddy's girl, complete daddy's girl. When I was younger, he would come home from work, um, from the department of agriculture. And as, the minute he walked in the door, he would scoop me up and put me up on his shoulders and walk around the house. And I felt so, you know, tall and powerful up there. And, and I just adored my dad. And, and it was really hard on me when we moved out West into Salt Lake. He just wasn't around. He was always home on Mondays. They, they let us have Monday as a sacred day. They didn't ask anything of him or any of the other general authorities on Monday. That was our family day. But Sunday, I mean, you almost guaranteed he wasn't home. He was somewhere else speaking. And every other day of the week, they were just, he was gone. He was busy, 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 traveling all the time. He traveled with my mother most of the time. And when they would travel, you know, there was me and now I had um, a younger brother, John, um, we would be farmed out to different family, different families in the ward. You know, John would go one place, I would go over here. And then my brother, Dan, and all of us would be farmed out so that um, somebody was taking care of us while they were gone. And um, they'd be gone for a month or two at a time. Oh my traveling. gosh, that long. Yeah. Oh yeah. They were all over the world. They went every, every, almost every country you can think of, they went to, and they'd be gone for at least a month at a time, sometimes six weeks, you know, something like that. And it was very, um, that was traumatic for me. And also for my younger brother, John, he's, he's shared with me what that was like for him. And, you know, he just didn't know it, it was very unsettling for him and for me to be shipped off around the, the ward and they didn't want to burn any bridges. So they would switch it up. You know, it was never the same place twice. 
And that they were only home for like maybe two or three months and then they'd be gone again for a month. And that went on my whole childhood. Well, this is very interesting to me because, of course, I'm aware, like any member of the church is aware, that if you have a bishop, which there's one in every ward, that his children, that the bishop's children frequently don't get a lot of daddy time with their bishop because he's so busy. Um, a state president, similar, but I had never really thought before about what it would be like to be the child of a general authority, which is sounds like it's a super bishop, gone even more than a bishop or a state president is. Yes, definitely. At that time. Now, I don't know how it is now with the, when they have the second quorum, but at, uh, at the time, that's they were the ambassadors and they traveled, you know, all over the world doing, they'd tour missions and, um, you know, do all kinds of things, speak everywhere. I've heard from so many people my whole life. So people walk up to me, are you Hartman Record Jr.'s daughter? He came to our stake and he gave a talk and it changed my life and, and or he, he performed my wedding and it was so beautiful. He, he gave me a blessing when I was ill. I can't tell you how many times I heard that, that he gave them a blessing when they were a missionary or whatever the case was. Um, he was just all over the place. How does that make you feel when people tell you things like that about your dad? Uh, that's a really good question too. I, it's a little, um, of course, it made me feel good that it was like, yeah, that's my dad, you know, and I, I'm my, I'm his daughter gives you a sense of importance, I think. And then at, on the other hand, I'm nobody, you know, until they find out who my dad is. <laughs> so like you're treated just like everyone else. And then they go, Oh, you're Hartman Rector Jr.'s daughter. And then all of a sudden they gush and gush and gush and they want to talk to you and they want to ask you questions and you realize that you don't have an identity aside from who your dad is. That's mm. kind of the feeling I got. I've got a question right. too here. Uh, Go ahead, Bill. RFM. So in this church, uh, we value family and, and, and that's the rhetoric that we give that the yeah. families are, are crucial and important. And they're the, the centerpiece of the plan of salvation. And, and yet, in these situations, my kids, I, I served as a bishop, so my kids had to deal with some of that where I was out of the house right. a lot of evenings taking care of church stuff and hanging out in the bishop's office with people all day on Sunday and not being home with my wife and my kids. What was your perception of that as it was going on? Were you proud of dad as he's serving in this uh, this higher calling in the church or is resentment kind of beginning to build? Do you sense like, man, it'd be nice to have my dad at home and he's never here. Like what were your, what were your feelings as that was going on? Oh, that's a really good question. I think I was proud. Most of the time I felt proud that my dad, you know, was doing this greater calling. However, the resentment did start to build. So it was kind of a mixed bag. Um, I remembered, you know, they would have these church sponsored daddy daughter dates um, when you're a young woman back then and 12 and up and my dad was never there. So I always had to go with somebody else's dad. He wasn't there when I was baptized. So some other guy that I didn't even know baptized me. Um, he didn't know me personally. So usually what happened is when he came home from being out of town or whatever, my mom would tell him all the bad things that us kids had done while he was gone. And so he would just be mad at me. And, and so there wasn't like the normal sort of, I don't know, the normal rhythm that you have with your parents where 
you know, they're not always mad at you. They're, they're mad for a minute and then they're over it. And, and, you know, just a normal day-to-day experience. I didn't have that. He was usually, you know, walks through the door. Mom says, well, Lila broke this or Lila, you know, hit John or whatever it was. And um, then my dad was mad and, and he, he, let me tell you, I was scared to death of my dad. He was, when he was angry, he was a very, very angry. And it was scary for me for years. I would just cower. It was just, it was very frightening until I became a little bit stronger personally to be able to talk, you know, stand my ground. But for a long time, he was, he really scared me. And so I had this respect for him, but it was also, um, it was tempered by fear and resentment. Yeah. When we were talking on the phone the other day, Lila, you mentioned an incident involving your older brother and uh, an incident with the car. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Well, this is just an example of kind of what would go on. Um, so my older brother, Dan, was he was five years older than me, and um, I adored Dan. I looked up to him, um, and he was kind of uh, – I just really respected Daniel. He was a smart guy. And he had wrecked the family car while my dad was gone. So when my dad came home, my mom gave him the bad news. Um, he had been on my brother for a while about his hair because he would wear his hair a little bit long. It was kind of the style of the day. And we're talking early 70s. And he kind of had the shaggy look. And my dad was always saying, I'm going to cut that hair. I'm going to cut that hair. Well, when he found out that the car was wrecked, he grabbed him and pulled him into his um, master bathroom, sat him down, got out his power shears, (laughs) and proceeded to go at his hair and shave it off. And I was watching all of this just incredulous. And I came in behind and saw what was happening. And I was enraged. I was, I was absolutely sickened. And I started kicking my dad from behind, like the bottom of his legs, saying, stop it, stop it. Don't cut his hair. Don't cut his hair. That's wrong. It's mean. And my brother just had his head down with, with tears streaming down his cheeks. He was completely silent. He just sat there and let my dad cut his hair off. And uh, my dad turned around and growled at me and told me to get out and said, little girls are meant to be seen and not heard. That was his kind of catchphrase about me (laughs) and uh, shoved me out the door and slammed the door behind me and locked it. And that was that. So, and that was very, for me, it was a traumatizing experience. I've never forgotten it. I'm sure Daniel didn't forget it either because he loved his hair and his hair was, was bicked. (laughs) <laughs> was bicked? What does that mean? Oh, that's when they sh- shave it down to maybe, I don't know, an in- half inch all over your head. So just a buzz cut. Yeah. Um, I, so you and I were talking a little bit yesterday because, you know, essentially we were having a conversation to kind of set up this interview and sharing some of the, the quotes and things that are somewhat troublesome that right. your dad had said. And I wanted to be clear with you that my intent today, and I know RFM's intent today, is not to just kind of say the bad about your dad. Um, but but I want to be clear on on this point. Like, I struggled being a dad. I There were times where I was really loud. There were times where I was screaming. 
And my kids likely perceived me as like, oh my gosh, what's this guy going to do? And, and were probably scared of me. I, I never hit my kids, but I yelled to the point where I'm sure I frightened them. Um, I struggled being a father and, and yet we're in this religious system that is praising your father, gives him a level of authority and um, mm-hmm. makes him the, the, this leader in the home, which, which also is culturally outside the church. The world is somewhat doing that too, right? Like we live in a patriarchal society. Um, right. I, I, maybe your thoughts on kind of that balance between here's just a human being trying to be the best he can. And, and at the same time, he's got shadows and flaws that, that on some level, this system seems to kind of shield and protect him from having to deal with those. Right. That's, yeah. I would say, first off, I want to say, um, you know, I just, I just told you a story that wasn't very, um, it wasn't a very nice story about my dad. And yet, and, and I'm very aware that, you know, he had a, he had a, a bad temper. Um, and by today's standards, some might say abusive. Um, he was also just wonderful on so many other levels. He was a joy to be around. He was funny. He was um, real. You know, he, he would talk about real things, not just surface things. He had, he had a depth to him. And, and there were a lot of things that I loved about. He loved little animals and he would play with them with us. And he, he loved, he, he was just a happy guy. He loved food so much and he, he loved sharing it. And I mean, there were so many good things about him. And the, I, I understand your question, I think, is that how do we reconcile these things with these people that we've put on a pedestal and, and revere as almost uh, godlike? And we don't want them to have flaws. We want, we want every word they say to be as if from God's own mouth. And we listen to them as if it is from God's own mouth. But the fact is, and I, of course, I was always aware of this being a daughter of one, that they are just humans with flaws and every one of them. So I, I've always had that understanding inside of me that none of these guys are perfect and they all have weaknesses and flaws. And, um, I never, I I never really wanted to believe otherwise about them. So I kind of had this. I've always had this caveat in my head that, you know, not everything they say is, is necessarily true. And I'm not going to take it as if it's from God's own mouth, aside from the prophet. And I usually put him in a different category, but the rest of them, you know, I was very aware that they were just normal people, just like you and I, who had extraordinary exposure and callings, but they really weren't any different than, than you and I are. And that not to, think that any, you know, not to put them on a pedestal because that's where you get into trouble because they're not always right. As you know, you know, and we all, you know, RFM, I know, you know, they are not always right. And we get ourselves into trouble when we think that they are. Did you have the chance to meet any other general authorities? I did. I met several. Um, I actually, my, every, every conference, I don't know if the general public knows this, but between sessions on both Saturday and Sunday, they would have this massive lunch with all of the general authorities and their families. And they would, they would use like the, a convention center or a ballroom of 
of the Hotel Utah in the beginning or um, the, uh, the church office building, you know, they had a giant room set aside. So everyone would, would leave the morning session and file down to the lunch, wherever we were having lunch. And so we all sat in, in the one room together and kind of mingled. There was a lot of mingling going on and a lot of laughter and a lot of, you know, talk. And so I got to meet a lot of them there and their families. Um, that was interesting to me when they, they, I think it was president Hinckley cut that off. He just felt like the sun doing that on Sunday. Cause there were servers. There were a lot of employees that had to prepare the food and serve the food and be there as, you know, waitresses and waiters. And they were doing that on Sunday. And I think he felt like that wasn't right. So he made it end. But up until that point, we always did that. And so I met a lot of them that way. Uh, Lila, can I just break in for a second? Excuse me. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, that's fascinating to me because honestly, I had not heard about these luncheons. And when you were telling the story about going over between sessions, my mind naturally defaulted to, oh, this must have been on Saturday between the Saturday morning session and the Saturday afternoon session, because of course they wouldn't be doing this on Sunday. And then all of a sudden you say this was happening on Sunday, yeah. which kind of shocked me in a mild way because, yeah. because of all the servers, because of, mm-hmm. um, well, when I grew up as a Mormon from the point of 18, when I'm baptized, yeah, we didn't go out to restaurants or do anything like that because right. that's breaking the Sabbath because you may not be working, but you're causing other people to have to work. That's what I grew up understanding. Exactly. And that's what we were all taught. And so this was kind of an anomaly. It's like, well, we're above that law and we can, we can do that if we choose because we are the, you know, the elite. I don't know. I don't understand the mindset, but that's what they would do. I think it was just a uh, kind of a tradition. And um, so I, I met lots of them that way. Another way I met them was um, I traveled with my dad. He actually took one kid on one trip with my, with my mom on one of his trips and we got to pick where we wanted to go. And uh, I was given the opportunity to go with them to Argentina, Chile, um, Brazil, uh, um, Haiti. I think those were the main countries. So I traveled with them and I was gone for a month from school. I got, had to get excused from you know, my school. And um, we traveled with President Kimball and... Let's see. There were several of them that were on that. I've got to think about it. It was when I was 13, so I don't, it's, it's kind of hazy. Pinnegar, um, I believe Dunn was with us, and that would be Lauren C. Dunn. Mm. And Hanks, Marianne Hanks. So <clears throat> that was a really, um, that I got to know them, you know, their personalities, and It was enjoyable. You know, I had a great time. I had to sit through a lot of meetings. That was the hard part because I was 13. I wasn't exactly, you know, at the age of being super excited about it. We were touring missions, but I got to get up and bear my testimony um, a few times. Uh, It was, it was just kind of a, it was very cultural too. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I've listened once again, as I said, I've reviewed some of your father's conference talks and in, I think it was the last two conference talks he gave, he made a point of talking about how important it is just to be nice. Yes. 
So that seems to have been a theme with him in his conference talks. Yeah. Did he find all the general authorities that he worked with to be nice? <laughs> no, he did not. Um, that's interesting. You would ask. He he had um, there was a certain general authority or two, but the one that is the 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 biggest um, offender, shall we say, in his mind. Am I am I okay to name that general authority? Well, we could say Boyd P, but wait, that might be too obvious. Perhaps we should <laughs> perhaps we should just say B Packer. There you go. Yes, he was the one. Um, the, my dad and, and Boyd K, I think it was Packer, did not get along well. Um, I think my dad was a little too rogue for him, and he was constantly being reprimanded and put in his place by that particular one. Um, and I think Marky Peterson was another, and he, and and on occasion, um, McConkie. But my dad and, and Bruce R. McConkey became better friends as time went on, but not so with Packer. I think they became less and less close. And um, my dad said, you know, you can be keeping all the commandments. You can be doing everything right. You know, check off the list. Dude, 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 I'm doing all these things. But if you're not nice, I just, he said, I just can't imagine how you would fit in the celestial kingdom with the Lord and, and not be a nice person. Did he tell you that directly? Oh, yeah. He told it. That was a theme, like you said. That was a theme in our home. Right, right. Because he said exactly, or almost exactly those words in general conference as well. Do you think that he had Boyd K. Packer in mind? Absolutely. Giving... I so didn't I... know that until later when he finally coughed that up. He would never mention who it was he was talking about. I think he didn't want to, you know, I just think he didn't want to disparage him. But later we got him to confess who it was that he was talking about. Well, that's funny to me because uh, he has a legitimate message that he's giving in general conference. And yet he's also up there in general conference, which has <laughs> been in the tabernacle, basically talking directly to Boyd K. Packer, yeah. who's seated behind him. <sighs> yeah. A little ribbing there going on. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Now, you had also mentioned a very interesting story about your dad when he was the mission president uh, it was in Southern California. Was it uh, San Diego? Yes, yeah. Back uh, from 77 to 79, I think he was the mission president there. That's right. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I was. I went there when I was still 16, 16 to 18. I lived in San Diego with my dad as the mission president. And, uh, you know, like I said, my dad was a little bit of a maverick, partly because he didn't really, he's not a rule keeper, uh, anyway, um, kind of grew up out in the, you know, the sticks, so to speak. He was a farm boy and he just didn't like all the strict rules that were in the missionary handbook. In fact, I doubt that he ever read it. So he was just the kind of guy that would just say, I don't need these rules. We're going to do it my way. And that's what he did is he, he ran the mission such that they didn't really pay attention to the rules in the handbook. They did whatever they needed to do in order to get the, the baptisms. And he was very competitive. Extre- I've never met a more competitive man than my father. He, um, just a side note, my dad was famous everywhere he traveled for his racquetball. He was an amazing racquetball player. And so everywhere he traveled, they would have people set up to play him that claimed, in, that thought they would be able to beat this old guy. You know, they would have young guys, 
every age possible, meet my dad on the racquetball court, wherever he was traveling to have a competition. And my dad loved this, that he ate it up because he, he would beat everyone. In fact, he typically won by 20 points. He, so what he started well, doing. The, isn't the game only to 21? It's to 21. As soon <laughs> as he got to serve, it was all over. So what he started doing is giving them a 20 point lead. He'd say, I'll oh give you a gosh. 20 point lead. Let's play. And if my dad was serving, it, there was no way they were going to return that serve. It was impossible. So it was too fast, too low, right in the corner. It, it was just, he would just ace them every time. And um, I remember a story of Steve Young challenged him and said, there's no way this old guy, this is when my dad was probably in his 60s, can beat me at racquetball. So they got together and it was kind of highly publicized and he, my dad beat him 21 to nothing. Was this when Steve Young was quarterback for the 49ers? No. Well, I don't know if he was 49ers yet. I'm not sure. He might have still been with BYU. But he was uh, – yeah, it might have been because I'm thinking it was when my dad was older. Anyway, I don't remember. I expect I he was still pretty – I expect he was still pretty athletic. Yeah. Yeah. He, he stayed athletic his whole life. He really did. He ended up having to have an eight bypass surgery, but he's he, because he had been so athletic, he had built all these little tiny auxiliary um, blood vessels that allowed him, him them to get around the blockages. But I, I, I'm off track. I think I started out saying he's very competitive. And so he had this, back to the mission story, he had this uh, c- competition with another mission president in Washington, and they were trying to beat each other on the number of baptisms. So, and this guy, this other mission president was someone my dad baptized back in Virginia. Uh, It was our next door neighbor, in fact. And so this guy is now a mission president and they have this little competition going. So he was breaking the rules. They were raking in people out in the, in the fields, the Mexican work field workers that didn't even speak English. They were bringing them in and baptizing them. And literally, there was one missionary, um, Elder Gasser was his name, Mark Gasser. I remember him from high school. He was on that in the mission field with us, and he baptized over 2,000 people on his mission. 2,000? Yes. That's the, those are the kind of numbers that were happening. And so all of a sudden, there's, there's a little light bulb going off back in Salt Lake that something is amiss because we can't possibly be bringing in this many people. We don't have fonts enough. We don't have callings for them. We don't have a way to keep them activated. So we better nip this in the bud. So they, uh, I think it was President Kimball at the time sent Von J. Featherstone out to San Diego to kind of put the hammer down on my dad and find out what on earth he was doing and how many rules he was breaking. So he came out and, um, you know, it started off very tense. He was not happy with my dad. He was, he was ready to reprimand him and uh, get everything battened down and back into working order. Or they were going to replace him with somebody else. And so, you know, my dad being the charmer that he is, um, took him out into the field, took him out with the missionaries, showed him what they were doing, explained the, the uh, programs he was setting up where they were doing the baptisms. They weren't even using the fonts. They were using local rivers and lakes and they were using whatever means necessary to keep these guys busy and activated. And he had this whole system set up to do that. 
And, you know, I'll just suffice it to say that Von Featherstone went back to Salt Lake City with a completely different attitude and just said, no, he's, he's, he's fulfilling the prophecies that President Kimball said that we would be baptizing by the thousands. He's doing it. So we need to let him do it. This is, you know, these are the latter days. We've paused on some plateaus long enough. Let, let, let Elder Rector do it. So that's, that's the story there on that one. Right. I remember, of course, at the time, uh, President Kimball being very famous for saying, uh, we have been on some plateaus long enough and give me this mountain to climb in addition to lengthen your stride and mm-hmm. just do it. All those statements from uh, President Kimball, I almost start to wonder how much your father was involved in his coming up with those statements. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know which came first. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, the 70s but. were a very uh, tumultuous time in the LDS church, particularly as regards the priesthood and temple ban on blacks. Can you tell us about your experience and your dad's experience with regard to the ban in the 1970s? Yes, um, I can. He, it was my dad having been raised in the South, so to speak, not in the deep South, in Missouri, which was not considered necessarily, um, I don't know, I don't think they were a slave state. But anyway, my dad had a, a healthy respect and love for black people and had several friends who were black that visited our home regularly. That was another thing about being, uh, being a daughter of a general authority. People just come to your house. They just come. They just show up. Uh, you, they don't have to be invited. They're just at your doorstep knocking all the time and um, want to want to talk, you know. And so anyway, this, there was a certain one that was a good friend of ours um, who came and, you know, he didn't have the priesthood yet because it wasn't allowed. So he came very upset one day. And um, this is my mother's version of the story that she tells. I don't think I was home when this happened, but he showed up. He was very upset, crying, wanted to talk to dad about the priesthood and, and why it was that he couldn't have it. And he felt worthy in every way. He was keeping all the commandments that he could possibly keep. And just couldn't understand why he he was being kept out of the temple and his family weren't able to be sealed together. And, you know, and so my dad brought him in, sat him down and gave him a blessing and told him in the blessing that within a year he would have the priesthood. And, uh, you know, the guy was ecstatic and left with a little spring in his step, as my mom would say. And then she said, she was just mortified and said, Hartman, what have you done? What, what on earth? Why would you promise him that? You have no control over that. You don't know that's going to happen. Why would you say that? And he said to her, that is what the spirit told me. And so that's what I told him. That's what I felt I should tell him. And so she was just like, oh man, you're, you're in trouble now because you, you've blown it. There's no way. Well, sure enough, that that, um, you know, the revelation happened within that year and, and he got the priesthood. And that was, you know, from that point on, my dad in his mind was the prophet and could do no wrong. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite the fulfillment (laughs) of a prophecy. Now, not all my dad's blessings turned out that way, you know, that, that just happened to work out, but there were many that didn't that I could tell stories about too, but I, you know, I digress. It, w- it was a kind of an important one. 
Yes. Can I ask you though, um, uh, not to take away from this blessing of the miraculous nature of it all, because, you know, I never do that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, do you think it'd be fair to say though, that your dad was probably involved in meetings in the upper levels of the church where Absolutely. this issue was being discussed? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. They were discussing it. So this might've been a little bit of insider trading. Yes. I would not doubt that at all. Or an insider blessing, perhaps. (laughs) Insider blessings. I think he might have been privy to that. I don't think he knew the exact timing on it, but I think he was felt pretty safe in uh, assuming that it would happen within a year. So yes, I would agree with you on that one. Yeah. Oh, I wanted to ask you this. Um, I have had experiences, actually one particular experience at a friend's house a long time ago, uh, actually back in the 1970s, where there was an argument going on between a husband and a wife. I'm just a teenager. I'm just visiting my friends. It's their mom and dad. It was kind of embarrassing and awkward for me. And I remember the, um, the father uh, saying, well, who holds the priesthood in this family? Mm-hmm. And that just shut his wife up. She wasn't happy. She was furious about it, but it ended the conversation. And I guess he won because he played the priesthood card. Was there ever anything like that that happened in your family? Oh, yeah. I wish that that was all that had happened. Um, yeah, that did happen. You know, we as women, I have to speak out for women for a minute if I, if I can. Um, when I went to the temple the first time, I remember I was, you know, getting ready to get married. So I was kind of oblivious to a lot of things, but that was one thing that stuck out along with the, um, the parts of the ceremony that they have now taken out. Um, And would you tell us about that? Because I want to just mention something. Sorry to interrupt here, No, but uh, I was completely oblivious to the woman's point of view going through the temple because I've never been a woman going through the temple. I never had an occasion to try and look at it from a woman's point of view. But a few years ago, I read this piece. It was on a a blog where a woman had written her experience going through the temple. And all of a sudden I was just, my eyes were opened Mm -hmm. and I could not believe that a woman could have such a different perspective going through the temple. One that had never even occurred to me. And I'm simultaneously looking at this and saying, Oh my gosh, this is really, really bad. And, but being able to see that this made complete sense from a woman's point of view. And all of a sudden I realized a lot of things about the temple regarding women that I had never seen before. Yeah. I think that's very common. I I think, you know, the church is really uh, great and fits really well with the straight white male. Um, If you're a female, it's a little bit more difficult and I think, I, I don't know, I, I can't speak for all women, of course, I can only speak for me, but my experience was, what the hell? I mean, that was basically how I felt about it. It was like, wait, so that was back in the day when they said that your husband was going to rule and reign over you in righteousness and that you were to follow his, it wasn't follow his counsel, it was you were to obey your husband. And I was thinking, you know, that's, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can say that, if I can make that covenant. That was really hard for me to raise my arm to the square because I thought, you know, that just gives him way too much power. No wonder this happened in my home. No wonder it ran amok. And my mom just would, you know, basically surrender her power the minute my dad walked through the door. 
And I just, I, it, it all sort of started to make sense to me. This is why, okay, I get it now. And I remember thinking, you know what? It does say in righteousness. So I'm going to be the one to decide if it's righteous or not. <laughs> you know, that was the one thing I could hang on to is I could decide that. And then if it wasn't righteous, I didn't have to follow it. I didn't have to obey. But the wording was very harsh on women. We had to basically surrender our power right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did I get off on that? Because we were talking about the playing the priesthood card. Oh, know, yeah. With, when men have them with their wives or with their children. Right. Okay. So in my home, my mother is, was not a, a, a shy woman. She was a very strong woman. Very strong. Um, when my dad wasn't around, she ran the show. And she was, we didn't mess with her. She was a strong, fierce presence. And, um, but when my dad was home, she, she shifted into a neutral area where, well, actually it was just very subservient. She just would, my dad would sit down at the dinner table. My mother would not sit down until he had finished eating. She, what, what, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. She would stand there and he would tell her, can I get a little jam? I could use some salt. Where's the gravy? Can I get some more water? And she would jump and just take care of that, you know, make sure everything, everything was done. You know, when he would get to a point where he was slowing down, only then would she start feeding herself. And uh, it was, it was amazing. She just absolutely, uh, I don't want to say, um, I don't want to say she, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with the word. How about catered to? Is that a generous she way of saying cater it? cater to him. Yes. Very good. She catered to his every command. I will tell you the reason. Question. Oh, I'm sorry. And we'll get back to this in a second, but I just wanted to say that, see, my parents were old enough to be my grandparents because I came along late in life and my parents were of the same generation as your dad. And dinner time was very formal in our family too. Right. But kind of in the opposite way, because my mom would be at home. She would cook dinner, of course, right? My dad would be at work, and us kids would be out playing. Right. But when it came dinner time, dinner would be on the table, and all of the men, including my dad, would stand by our chairs until my mom seated herself. Maybe my dad held the chair for her, too. I'm sorry. It's been a while wow. since I was a kid. But we all stood until she was seated, and then we all sat down. And then we all put our napkins in our lap and we waited. We had to wait until my mom took the first bite and then we could eat. So that's why when you said that uh, you described your experience in your family, I said, "What? wait a second, what? Because it was going exactly the opposite of the way I expected it to go. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's a completely opposite. That's crazy. I, I, now I don't know which is the more acceptable for the time. I'm not sure which was done, you know, broadly. But uh, that was that was the way it went, and and here was another thing: is if you if if you argued with my dad, if they got it, if I got into an argument with my dad, and he didn't start doing this till a little later. He at, at the beginning it was the priesthood. He would say, you know, I hold the priesthood, and what I say goes. So there, that would just sort of end, and he didn't say it calmly like that. <laughs> it was loudly, and uh, you just there was just no arguing with that. Later, you know, as he got older, he and we as adults started challenging things that he said or did. 
Um, then it was, I've had my second anointing and that was to shut us all up. So, so your dad had had his second anointing. Yes. Now all the general authorities have, that's, that's another thing. He, he kind of shared some of these things with us. He said, all of them have, and probably many other people that, you know, that are longtime solid members of the church have also had them. They won't talk about them. They're not supposed to talk about them, but he felt fine about talking about it. That's something that's interesting to me too, because I know a little bit about the second anointing. Uh, I have not received one, just, just so you know. <laughs> but uh, but from what I understand, it is cloaked in secrecy, and those oh, who yeah. receive it are put. I mean, they're told you're not supposed to mention this to anybody. Right. That you receive the second anointing, and yet your dad is openly uh, claiming that he's received a second anointing to you and other members of the family in order to put the end to arguments. Right. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? So it, he felt that he was above that law, apparently. Um, and that's the, that's kind of the God complex that starts happening. I think with some of them, especially if they have any narcissistic uh, traits, which my dad, you know, I have a brother who's a psychologist, my younger brother, John, and he has, he has, um, <laughs> Shall we say psychoanalyzed your dad? Yes, he has given him. He says he is absolutely textbook narcissist. I don't know that. I'm not a professional, but that's what he says. And if you have those those tendencies, this calling, this church, and having that calling feeds that like no other. I think maybe the only other thing that would be rel- that would be close to that is being a politician. But he just he ate that up all of the accolades, all the attention, just being the powerful, you know, I am the president of whatever. He loved all of that. And having that second anointing that just put the top on it. And I think he just couldn't help himself. He could not keep that a secret. It was just too amazing and too wonderful. And that made him all powerful. And um, he couldn't, he can't sin. That was the part, you know, the second anointing tells you in, in the word, the verbiage, um, it, they tell you that, you know, you can do all manner of, of sinning. You can, you can do everything short of, I believe, the blaspheme against the Holy Spirit or something like that. Yeah. Or shed innocent blood. I don't even know if you, I, I he could shed innocent blood too. Blood. I got to get me one of these. <laughs> I know. Right. Oh my gosh. I, I think you might even be able to do that, but I'm not positive. I'll check on that, but you can, you know, you can do just about anything wrong. You can have affairs, you can all kinds of things and it's okay because your, your uh, exaltation is guaranteed. You don't have to worry about it. So I think he just figured that falls under that category. He can talk about it and he'll still be, you know, forgiven. Well, I guess that much is true. That's pretty uh, small potatoes. When it yeah. comes to sinning, if you've had your calling and election made sure you received your second anointing, you can do anything you want, say blaspheming against the Holy Ghost, and it will be forgiven. Well, sure, yeah. you can tell other people you've had your second anointing. Why not? Yeah, why not? So, yeah, I think he just figured that's covered and he's good. I wanted to talk with you about a talk that your dad gave in April General Conference of 1981. I had not even heard about this talk. It had not registered on my radar mm-hmm. at all. Of course, when he was actually giving the talk, I was still in Japan on my mission in April of 1981. 
and we didn't like listen to general conference over there on the other side of the world. Maybe the assistance to the president did at the mission home. I was never one of those. So I'm out in the field, but even uh, doing research on Mormonism, I had never heard about this talk, which he gave, which ended up being controversial enough that an article about it was published in the New York Times shortly after it was given. Can you tell us about this talk? Oh, yes, the dreaded. Um, yeah, so this was a talk that was based, I believe, on, it was about the family. Yeah, I think it's called, uh, was it Turning the Hearts? Turning the Hearts, yeah. So, you know, he talked about a lot of, a number of things uh, with regard to um record keeping and genealogy work and that sort of thing. But at some point in the talk, he manages to plug in his anti-homosexual agenda. And he said something along the lines of where he said that, you know, God doesn't put female spirits in male bodies or male spirits in female bodies. And that, you know, homosexuality is a sin And he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers. And the hearts of the children shall turn to their fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. We are then in the very serious business of attempting to save the earth or to keep it from being wasted when the Lord comes. I have often wondered how or why the earth would be wasted if children's hearts did not turn to their fathers. Today is very clear for all to see. When the Lord comes, if if he finds nothing but birth control, abortion, sterilization, homosexuals, the earth is wasted. I'm sure you will never turn your own children's hearts more to you than you will by keeping a journal and writing your personal history. They will ultimately love to find find out about your successes and your failures and your peculiarities. It will tell them a lot about themselves, too. They'll get a great desire to raise a family of their own when they see what a great blessing you were to them. If children have a happy family experience, they will not want to be homosexuals, which I am sure is an acquired addiction, just as drugs, alcohol, and pornography are. The promoters of homosexuality say they were born that way, but I do not believe this is true. There are no female spirits trapped in male bodies and vice versa. He who made them made them male and female. Every form of homosexuality is sin, said the living prophet Spencer W. Kimball. You know, there's just no two ways about it. Right. He also likened it to an addiction, like a drug addiction. Oh, yeah, that's right. He did. It's an addiction. And can I tell you, uh, when you told me about this talk, that was what led me to start looking back at the LDS Church's website for general conference talks. And I just went to the different general conferences and found the ones where your dad, Hartman Rector Jr., spoke. And I went back through them. And finally, I got to the one It was in April of 1981. That was the one that you had told me about. Mm -hmm. And I had this interesting experience, and I would encourage anybody who's listening to the program to do the same thing. Go to the April 1981 General Conference and pull up that talk and then hit play so that you can listen to Elder Hartman Rector Jr. give his talk. And at the same time he's giving the talk, go ahead and read through the transcript of it, which is on the same page. There are three... (laughs) Really, there are three places, three places in that talk where the transcript does not match at all what is being said, because there are three places where he made, let's just say, controversial comments, and some of them are rather lengthy, and those comments are cut out of the transcript. 
Right. So you'll, I'm reading through the transcript and I get to this period and all of a sudden he's talking on and on and on and it's not matching the transcript. <laughs> and he's saying these very controversial things that you've mentioned. And then right. finally the transcript picks up again and it goes on to another place and then it stops. And then he's going on and on about these more controversial comments. And finally the transcript picks up again. The transcript is probably about maybe 80% of the actual talk that he gave. Yeah. Once you take into account the parts that were omitted. And so then I wanted to know, Hey Bill, you're still there, right? Hey Bill. He's on I, bet he, I bet he has it on mute. Yeah. Sorry. It took a second. Go ahead. It's okay. <laughs> I hadn't heard from you for a while, but I know you went and got the audio clips. But the thing that I did was I, I looked at what was on the LDS church website. So this is another of those instances where the transcript of the talk has been severely edited in this case to send some things down the memory hole. However, they did not edit the audio of the talk to take those things out. Now, it was my thought that I wondered if this transcript had been edited recently or if they had edited it shortly after Elder Hartman Rector Jr. gave the talk. So I went back once again on the church website and I went to the general conference report for that conference, which was the May Enzyme magazine from 1981, where they print all the conference talks. And according to the LDS Church website, and once again, I don't have a hard copy of the May 1981 Ensign to compare it with, but according to the church website, it had already, this talk had already been edited by the time it was published the following month in the general conference report. And then Bill had done some research on this, and he had found that this was not just controversial uh, in a small way, it ended up being controversial in a big way. And Bill had found something at the New York Times. Can you talk to that, Bill? Yeah, it was simply the New York Times ran an article in 1981 that essentially said, like, in the LDS church, this leader got up, gave this talk, and here are some of the comments he made about homosexuality, uh, which I thought, you know, if you go back to the 1980s, I mean, we're talking about the the AIDS crisis and everybody being kind of scared of what this this disease was going to do uh, across our culture, uh, I thought it was quite interesting that the Times picked up on this and uh, and was addressing it. Yes, and I saw that the date on that article of the New York Times was April sixth, nineteen eighty one. So that was really very shortly after this talk was given in General Conference. Yeah, and I'll and I'll make sure that you know we share all of these sources in the the show notes so that people can uh, go and read the article themselves. I appreciate that. But then I thought, well, wait a second. These comments from this talk made a pretty big impact nationally if it's reported in the New York Times, which made me wonder if it was that publicity, that negative publicity that was received because of this talk that may have caused the church to go back and edit it before it was published in the May issue of the Enzyme, the General Conference Report. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that was exactly why they did it. All I know is what is in the May uh, 1981 General Conference Report as it's reported on the church website. So I would be interested if anybody out there happens to have a hard copy of the May 1981 Enzyme and could compare it with the talk and see if indeed those edits had already been made within the month. Uh, according to the way it's presented on the church website, the answer to that is yes, and the bad publicity from the New York Times, at a minimum from the New York Times, could have been the cause for that. Well, I can tell you right now that they, that it had it, it was it was redacted before they printed the uh, the ensign in May because 
we were all excited to read it. And <laughs> what did he say again? What was it? Because back then, you know, you, you, we didn't have, we couldn't just go to YouTube and listen to it again. So we were waiting for it to come out and, um, and it was gone. No mention at all of homosexuality in, in the ensign that year. Do you know how your dad felt about being edited that way? I don't, you know, he, knowing him, he would have just brushed it off as, okay, well, I guess they didn't like what I said. I don't think he probably took it to heart too much because that's just not his way. If he did, he would have kept it quiet and he did. He never mentioned anything to us about it. Um, I remember my mom saying something, why did they do that? You know, why, why did they feel like they had to cut your, your talk up like that? And uh, he just said, ah, you know, they do stuff like that. And Mm. I thought it was interesting because I thought that was pretty much what the church believed at the time. So I was like, that's kind of what I thought too. This is back in 1981. Yeah. I mean, the church, many, many people in the church still believe it today. Right. It it does seem on some level, I want to give the church a little bit of credit here for being progressive in terms of sensing that this message wasn't kosher and and essentially removing it from the text. But you guys are pointing to a time where Spencer W. Kimball's putting the exact same ideas, uh, you know, into his book. And, um, you know, I don't, I, again, I don't know what the wrestle is behind the scenes of, of which leaders are saying what and which ones are getting pushback on this and how those conversations are going. But at least to recognize that General Conference has this kind of higher standard of what we allow to be said or not said. We can point to other talks given uh, you and I were talking yesterday, RFM, about Ronald Pullman being one of those. To give the church a little bit of credit here for them sensing like, hey, this message isn't one that we want in the text of General Conference and removing it uh, for whatever their motives are for doing that. Right. And I will tell you, Bill, if you go back and listen to the talk, part of the talk by Hartman Rector Jr. that was edited out of the written transcript, he quotes President Kimball. Wow. Yeah, so he's obviously feeling he's got permission to believe these things because his prophets here in Revelator are saying them. Yeah, so I think you're right. For whatever reason, and it's probably largely to do with the negative publicity, the church decided that they were going to edit this out. And uh, I agree with you that the church should get some degree of credit for doing that even back in 1981. I would say, on the other hand, though, my concern is that by doing this, this is a pattern, as, as you and I and probably everybody who listens to this podcast knows, that the church has of not actually addressing issues. In other words, if they really had a problem with what was said in general conference, if they thought it was off the mark, then I would like to think that they would come out with a retraction or a correction to let everybody know who heard that talk that that is not the position of the church, that this was uh, off the mark, that it needs to be understood in a different way or something to signal people who heard it that this is not what we teach or not what we believe. Instead of simply editing it out for the written version and then letting it go down the memory hole. Yeah, I I also would simply ask, like it, it seems appropriate when these things happen that when you go to LDS.org, which is no longer LDS.org for that matter, Church of Jesus Christ.org, um, when you go to the website, the church's website, that when you go to these general conference talks or these Enzyme articles, there should be a note somewhere in the header that says this talk has been edited from, its, from the way it was originally given. 
uh, and then also attribute the reason that some of the remarks made were uh, not the doctrine of the church and were offensive. And, and then members would have clarification as they go to these things. Instead, what they do, most members just see the text, they read the text, they move on, or they listen to the audio and they move on and they have no idea that those two are very different things. Right. And like you and I talked about yesterday, Bill, the pattern for the church doing this is established. We've seen a number of times where things have been said in general conference that for whatever reason get edited out of the written version. This is a rather glaring example of this. I, I'm not aware of anything, any other talk where bigger sections have been edited out of a talk than this particular talk by Hartman Rector Jr. However, they still allow the audio to stand. And so that's one level of sending things down the memory hole. Allowing the audio to stand, at least as testament to what was really said, if you want to listen to the audio or watch the video, you can do that on the church website. But when we get to the famous example of Ronald E. Pullman from 1984, October, general conference where he gives a talk that the church doesn't like. He goes overboard to the point where, and of course, what he talks about is there's a difference between the gospel and the church, and the gospel is not necessarily the church, and you can grow to a point in the gospel where you don't really need the church. That was a talk and a message that was so offensive to the powers that be that they didn't just edit the written version and leave the audio. They actually had Ronald Pullman go back into the tabernacle and retape the newly revised and edited version where they changed the message completely. Crazy. So that's the extreme version where they really, really don't like something, okay? Then they're going to change the audio and have it retaped. In your dad's case, uh, apparently they just didn't like it. They didn't really, really not like it. They just didn't like it, so they changed the written version but left the audio standing. Yeah, and I think it's important to note, too, that Pullman, this whole thing with Ronald Pullman certainly doesn't occur in a vacuum. There had to have been conversations behind the scenes of going to this drastic measure of, of creating a completely separate talk with a cough track in an empty conference center. Um, to, to have that happen indicates to me that almost assuredly this 1981 uh, instance uh, with your father, Lila, uh, sets up a space where they go like, hey, we did this back in 81 to this degree, it didn't seem to bite us in the rear end, so let's take it a step further. Certainly, uh, your dad's experience uh, with having his talk edited at least was one more data point as they were likely discussing the, how to handle uh, Ronald Pullman's talk. Yeah. I'm actually kind of shocked that they haven't gone to a point where they have to preview all of the talks to make sure everything's on point. But Maybe my, they do that. I yeah, don't. my understanding is they definitely do. There is a correlation committee. Okay. That you know reviews. What I do about that. Well, I don't know that I know it, but this is my understanding. is It's definitely very tightly controlled, at least after Ronald E. Pullman spoke. Right. And, and I can yeah. share a data point here. Uh, when David Bednar gave a talk maybe seven, eight years ago now at this point, nine years ago, where he talked about Jesus being born on April 6th and that being his birthday. I know for a fact that the media that was asked to attend or allowed to attend, they were given, they are given generally the talks uh, before they're given. So there is a type, typed out transcript of what that leader is about to say. Mm -hmm. David Bednar in that little portion of his talk went off the cuff. It wasn't in the transcript. And so I do think, oh. RFM, you're right. The leaders of the church do have to get their talks okayed. And yet at the same time, the top 15 at least 
feel some freedom in being able to go off the cuff if necessary or if prompted. That's really interesting. It sounds to me like David A. Bednar may have some character similarities to your dad, Lila. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think probably they they go for that that type more than not. I don't want to say they all are narcissists. Don't don't quote me on that. But you have to have a certain amount of uh, self awareness, and uh, you have to have a certain personality to be to be able to carry this off. Mm-hmm. No shy violets. They they want charismatic, strong personalities. Let me finish off by asking you, Lila, whether your dad's attitude toward homosexuals and homosexuality was consistent through the rest of his life, because I understand he passed away a year ago. Correct. Yeah, there's actually a little story, and I took a note on it. I spoke with my brother, John, yesterday about this. Um, John... Uh, you know, he, when my dad died, Peggy Fletcher Stack wrote in the Salt Lake Tribune um, an article about him. And in that article, most of it was positive, but she did mention his stance on homosexuality in a negative light. And um, after John read that, he, um, he remembered a conversation that he had had with my dad where, he, you know, he had gone to talk to my dad. And this is before he had gotten too old because um, that – you know, his memory started to fade a little bit in the end there. But before that had happened, um, John had gone to visit him about his stance on homosexuality. And my dad shared a story with him. He said that this couple who had always really admired him um, had come to visit him after the death of their son. And they, they had asked, they actually had wanted him to speak at their son's funeral, but they wanted him to know that their son was gay and that he actually had committed suicide on the steps of an LDS chapel. And they had a book about on homosexuality that they wanted to give my dad to read before he spoke at the, at the boy's funeral. And he, so he read that book and he said that it, it changed his views entirely. And he realized that, you know, nobody chooses to be gay or, you know, there may be some who do, but for the most part, these people are born this way. And he never had believed that he always thought it was a choice. It was an addiction. It was a sin. Um, It was not something that they were born with. And that changed his opinion on that. So John contacted Peggy uh, Fletcher Stack about that conversation she had had with, he had had with his dad and she actually went into, because you can now, you know, of course you can edit what you write, went into the uh, Tribune online and, and added a little blurb at the end where, I think I shared this with you guys, um, where it says that he had changed his opinion and his thinking on homosexuality later in his life. Yeah, you did share that with us. And I remember reading it, but it's very interesting that you can add the additional detail that that part of the article, which I read about his changing his attitude in later life toward homosexuality was not part of the original article, but it was something that was added because of the contribution from your brother, John. Right. Right. It was added later. And I really admire her for doing that, for going in and making that change. You know, that was very, um, that was gracious of her to do that. And, and this, you know, the story of the, I, I can't even imagine 
that poor young man who who committed suicide on the steps of a church that's very i mean there's a there's a clear message there and i think it's important that that the church take note of that i don't know if that they have but i wish that they would yeah i agree i agree well i wanted to make sure that we completed the story with that part of it on this uh this segment that we're talking about regarding that very controversial talk he gave back in 1981, and I'm glad that we were able to do that. Can you tell us about your brother, John, and his involvement, I think it was John, with Sunstone Magazine? Actually, that was my brother, Dan. Dan. um, Five years older than me. Yes. John's five years younger. I'm right in the middle. Um, Dan was- Dan was the one who got the haircut. Yes, the one who got the haircut. He was very um, involved in the intellectual- movement that was going on at the time that the church was not happy about (laughs) and they spoke out about it but um he was president of sunstone magazine also editor and this uh, back in the 70s yes well this would have been it it was 80s early 90s if i'm correct okay because i know part of the story has to do with around 1993 right so he was the what happened was um you know, being a rector and being in charge of Sunstone Magazine, you know, there was a lot of controversial stuff that was being printed. They were talking about all the stuff that <laughs> that you talk about, Bill, and you talk about RFM on your podcast, as well as many others. They, they were privy to these things. That A lot of this stuff had been leaked, um, you know, with the records of the journals and everything that were coming out of the archives. They were finding out about the polygamy that went on with Joseph Smith and they were, they were finding out about the book of Abraham and, and all these things were happening. And uh, the church did not want this known. They did not want any of this stuff published, published, but it was being published by Hartman record Jr.'s son. So my dad was getting a ton of pushback. I mean, it was, it was a constant problem in our home. If Dan was home and my dad was home, they were arguing about this. So, uh, and it was, it was going on all the time. I was married. Let's see. I got married in 1980. So I was only there like on Sundays, we still went home every Sunday and had dinner at the house and Dan would be there with his wife and, um, and they, they'd get into these arguments and my dad would be, you know, begging him to quit and to shut the whole thing down and not be a part of it. And Dan just said, no, there's freedom of speech in this country. Why, why can't I, why the church needs to have a forum for people who know these things or believe these things and want to talk about it. And there is nowhere for them to do that. This is the only Sunstone was really that. And, uh, what was the other one? Dialogue. Dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was it. And, um, so this was a con a recurring theme. And, uh, so as you know, what ended up happening was there was a group, a whole, well, all of them, everyone involved with Sunstone was hauled in to their stake presidents and, and they had church councils on, on all of them. And I'm not sure. I wish I knew the backstory better and could tell you who was the one that demanded this, who, who, who um, you know, got it, made it happen. I don't know exactly who that was. I have a hunch who it was. The one who wasn't so nice. Yes, I, I believe that's who it was. Yeah, Boyd K. Packer. Right. The uh, so, grizzly bear that's hard to stage manage. 
<laughs> Apparently. So these poor guys, as we know them now as the September 6th, they were all excommunicated, six of them anyway. And then later there was a seventh, um, which would have been Paul Toscano's wife. Margaret. Margaret. And mind you, Paul and Margaret had been in our home many times. I had been there listening to the conversations with him, with them and my brothers and my dad, and they would all get into it. My dad would laugh and laugh. He thought, he thought Paul was hilarious. And he kind of, you know, he had to shake his head in, aff- in affirmation many times when Paul would bring things up and say, well, you know, why isn't the church doing anything about this? And why aren't they talking about that? And so my dad was, you know, there was a softening there, but he was getting so much pressure from inside that it was really hard. He, he finally just had to come down and say, you've got to stop. Um, and, and that was I, to Dan? Yes. And I just learned from John yesterday that Dan received a phone call from Boyd K. Packer himself. Tell us about that. So, okay. So apparently my dad wasn't getting the job done fast enough. And so Elder Packer gave my brother Dan a call and basically demanded that he shut down Sunstone. And Dan, you know, knowing my brother Dan, he would have been very sweet and gentle in his reply. And he would have said, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry. I don't want to do that. I think this is necessary. I just know how he spoke about it. He loved what he was doing. He felt that it was absolutely necessary in the church that we needed that forum. And I know he would have talked like he would have spoken like that with all due respect, but he, you know, he just adamantly refused to follow suit. This is Radio Free Mormon breaking into this interview for a moment to add the following detail. After the interview was over, Lila texted me the following clarification and addition regarding this telephone conversation that Boyd K. Packer had with her brother Dan. At the conclusion of the phone call, Elder Boyd K. Packer told Dan that because he would not follow his apostolic counsel, that Dan would reap adversity all the days of his life. This became known in the family as the Packer Curse. So Lila's brother, Dan, received, courtesy of Boyd K. Packer, an apostolic curse. That Boyd K. Packer, such a kidder. And now back to our interview with Lila Tuller. So they were all called in. They were all excommunicated except Daniel. Why not Daniel? I believe that my father intervened there. Maybe they cut a deal. Maybe, you know, my dad spoke with Packer and said, look, if you won't excommunicate my son, I'll make sure that, you know, things change. I'll make sure that he, he, he quits his job there eventually. And, you know, let's let him keep his membership. This will look really bad. I know he just didn't want his name tarnished and he didn't want his son kicked out. Right. So, um, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't excommunicated. He did have several church courts or I should say disciplinary councils and a church court, but they, they came back, they did um, disfellowship him for a time. And he got his, you know, he got his recommend back. He, he, he got everything back and continued onward as if he were a believing LDS uh, member for the rest of his life. He, had, he died young at 46 in a hiking accident. Mm, I'm sorry to hear that. It was very, very tragic. But at the time, he was an active member 
of the church. Lila, can I ask you this? Because we're getting to the point where we have about 30 minutes left of this interview. And I want to talk with you about your personal journey, because I understand that you have, uh, to some degree, parted ways with the LDS church. And we'll get to that. But I want to ask you at this point, all this stuff is happening right in front of you and in your presence. You're aware of your brother, Dan. He's on Sunstone. I understand you're reading some of the magazines. You're familiar with some of the contents from what you've said already on this program. Is that correct? Yes. And so, and now you're here with these arguments and you've got uh, Paul and Margaret Toscano in your home and uh, you're just exposed to all of this. What kind of impact did that have on you and your faith in the LDS church? Well, it was disturbing for me to hear. Um, I would listen to their conversations and I wasn't necessarily invited. I just was eavesdropping from uh, the other room or, you know, loitering around trying to hear all that I could. Um, They didn't kick me out, but they, you know, these were kind of closed discussions somewhat in my home, although loud enough that I could hear everything that was being said. Um, And I, it was upsetting for me. I, I remember some of the stories that they were telling um, particularly polygamy was upsetting for me because I didn't like it anyway. No woman does, generally speaking. Um, the idea of it is just, it's really demeaning. So I remember hearing these stories about Emma, about Joseph marrying these women behind her back, about him, uh, you know, her finding out that her best friend was pregnant and just the argument that they had. There was a story of her pushing someone down the steps and um, all of these kinds of stories that I had heard, they were very upsetting to me. And I, I remember distinctly a conversation I had with my dad, not while everyone was there, but later and saying, dad, is this stuff true about polygamy? What they're saying, is this true? And he said, listen, this is not something you need to worry about. We don't practice polygamy in the church. This was all done in the past. It's over. All you need to worry about now is being married to one person and you just read that book of Mormon and you stay active and all will be well with you. You don't need to worry about these. And he said, and a lot of this stuff is just anti-Mormon, you know, propaganda. It's, it, it really, we don't even know that these things are true. So I said, okay, that was good enough for me. I said, all right, fine. I'll do that. I don't want to think about it anyway. It was very upsetting to me. So I did, I put, I just put my nose to the grindstone and I read that book of Mormon like it was air and water. And, um, you know, that it it comforted me enough. Um, you know, there's, there's so many, (laughs) there's things in the chapter in Jacob that, that completely contradict one section 132. And and I would have questions about that. And, you know, I usually took those questions to my dad and he was usually pretty good at sort of, you know, uh, brushing everything under the rug or or sort of calming my seas a little bit by saying, you know, this was a long time ago. This isn't what we're not, we're not doing this now. You don't need to worry about this stuff. You know, that kind of, it was, it was good enough for me at the time. But if you, you know, are we, are we segueing into now my sort of my faith crisis transition? Yes, please. And I'll make a comment here. Uh, that you've read the Book of Mormon a lot. I've read the Book of Mormon a lot. I know when people are having difficulties in the church, they're frequently counseled by their leaders. Read the Book of Mormon, read the scriptures, especially the Book of Mormon, general conference talks, but especially the Book of Mormon. And yeah. frequently, 
uh, that's helpful to some people, but to other people like you, apparently, if you read the Book of Mormon and you read it with the knowledge of other things and you're sort of yeah. comparing things and reading it actively, sometimes reading the Book of Mormon can raise as many questions as it answers. Yes. And it did for me. It also raised the um, issue of race. There's a lot of racism in the Book of Mormon. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even realize how much until I considered sharing the Book of Mormon with a black friend of mine. Did you? I thought about it. And then I thought twice because I realized, wait a minute, what about all those references to the white and delightsome and the dark and loathsome and the, you know, the, the curse of the dark skin. And if you repent, your skin becomes white. That was disturbing to me. And I realized I can't share this book with him. I, I, and I, and I asked some members, black members, how they reconciled that. And I had one guy tell me, look, that was a specific time. It, they weren't, they weren't black. They were dark. And that was a mark that was put on them for a purpose at the time. We're not talking about Negroes here. We're talking about the native Americans who were cursed with the dark skin, but it was for the purpose of keeping them separate so that they didn't intermingle their belief systems. So and that makes it okay. That made it okay to him. <laughs> okay. Well, Whatever and works. I, I, I was, you know, I didn't get that. I thought, so you're, you don't care that the dark skin is used as a curse. That doesn't bother you. It's a basis for segregation. Exactly. And he said, no, I don't see the two as co corresponding. I don't see my dark skin as being the same thing as what's going on in the Book of Mormon. No, because that's a black person's dark skin as opposed to a Native American's copper right. skin or dark skin. Yeah, but but we've been taught in the church. I mean, if you're a member of the church for any length of time, you've heard the philosophy that, or it's not even a philosophy, it was doctrine, that these are descendants of Cain, that they are being punished for uh, being less valiant in the pre-existence. Correct? Yep. And there's other, I'm sure there's other things that we were taught, but those are the ones that really stick out to me. And if that's the case, then you're looking at a black person as a less than, as a sort of sub, you know, subpar, because they had to come down through the lineage of Cain because of something they did that we they don't remember and we don't remember. But hey, look at them. They're dark. They must have done something bad. That's how they're looked at. Just, just the fact that they can't participate in the temple yeah. or hold the priesthood designates them regardless of our reasoning. It designates them as some type of second class member. Right. Now, of course, that's not the case anymore. And we can say, oh, but look, the church, you know, they changed their mind on that. That doesn't really comfort most. I, it doesn't comfort me. It's like way too little too late. Should have never happened. Yeah. And on top of that, Elder Oaks makes it clear that it's not that, you know, the church changed its mind. It's that God changed God. its mind. Yeah. They throw God under the bus. If God is God, then he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he doesn't change his mind like that. At least that's the way I understood it. And so to me, it was like, no, no, you guys are trying to throw God. You're trying to make God responsible for your mistake. And that is so wrong on so many levels. Why can't you just fess up and say, you know what? We had some, we, or just come out and say Brigham Young was a racist. Just say it. Just say the words. And so was 90% of the members of the church at the time. And we allowed this to go on way too long, way after the rest of the world had already woken up. We come up, we finally come, you know, 
sort of kicking and screaming to the table. And it's, it's, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing for me. And when I speak to my friends who are black, I, I'm, I'm ashamed or I was ashamed of the church. I still am because I still am a member in, you know, I guess in reality, but I, in, in all, in all other ways, I have separated myself and I guess we can, I'm jumping ahead, but um, these were some of the things that really upset me that the church did, has not owned these things. It has not, even in the, even in the gospel topic essays, it's a, it's a really lame attempt. It's so, it's painted in such a way and that it's, they're, they're almost dancing around it. They don't ever really come out and, and own it. They just say, well, you know, this happened, but, 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 you know, lots of excuses and lots of, well, you know, you have to consider this and consider that. They don't just come out and say, Hey, we made some mistakes. We, we are men. We are fallible. We are not God. We're in charge of this thing, but we don't always listen to what God says. We don't even know what God's saying half the time. We're making up our own minds about what's right. And we've made a bunch of mistakes. And as we figure these things out, and as we become enlightened, we are doing our best to make things right. And please forgive us. We are sorry for the harm we have caused. If they would even just say that, but they never will. Why do you think they never will? Because if they do that, that undermines the whole thing this is all set up on. It is set up on this idea that these men are in a, in constant in a constant state of revelation from God and that they are inspired everything they say comes from God. And if they if they undermine that, now we're all just on we're all the same. <laughs> Even the prophet is just like the rest of us. Now we're just like any other organization. We can't even say we're run, the church is run by, by God anymore because we all know that if we do that, well, I know if we do that, if they do that, they can, that puts us on the same, we are now just like every other religion in the world. And that we just simply can't have that. We have to be the only true religion. Yeah. It does seem interesting, right? Like, God has, it's okay if God makes mistakes and it's okay if God changes his mind, but we still have to have God driving the bus. And if we had all acknowledged like God wished we would have gone one direction, but our prophets decided to go another direction and it took a hundred years for them to finally make space for God to correct them. Then that, like you say, that, that takes, uh, that takes the entire train off the tracks. Right. Right. And I wanted to hear your response to that. I, I completely agree with you, Lila. Uh, and I'm sort of going back to what you said earlier on, that your dad's called as a general authority. You know, he makes mistakes. You know, he's fallible. Yeah. And you attribute that to him. You attribute it to all the other general authorities. But you make an exception for the president of the church, who is a prophet with a capital P. That's right. I did in past tense. Oh, right. And I meant in past tense. Yeah. And of course, we do that. Our mind allows us to uh, make space for certain things. I was going to say play games, but I think it allows us to make space for our belief system without ever once thinking, okay, well, wait a second, taking it that one step further where we're not prepared to go at the time. That right. president of the church has children too. Yeah. And they've probably seen him uh, behave less than celestially <laughs> at home. No doubt. Yeah, we don't want to look at that. Well, the way that I always thought that it worked, the way that I made space for it was when the prophet speaks for God, he speaks for God. 
And and in the old days, I thought they were supposed to say something along the lines of thus saith the Lord. They don't do that, really. So now it's kind of left up to us to decide when he's speaking for God. And most of the time I would say, well, if he's standing behind the pulpit in conference, or if it is printed in the ensign, that's when he's speaking for God. That was kind of the way I, and when he goes home and he's, you know, yells at his wife or his kids, he's not speaking for God, but he's just being the man prophet then. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's how I sort of. We always have to have some fail safe, some caveats right. in order to hold on to the belief that an individual, the president of the church in this case, is the prophet of God. Yeah. So can you take us through what it was that happened to you? I understand it was really only about a year ago that you went through a dramatic repositioning of your belief system. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'll try to make it quick. So um, these things, you know, started young and then they were kind of dormant for a while and they, they came back out slowly. Um, I think the very first thing that happened that started me down just on the, the rabbit hole, so to speak, was I, I was listening to it, something on television while I was getting ready for the day. And they were talking about cults and what some of the, um, what some of the common denominators were in, in the cults that had been, you know, in the world. And one of the, they said, they started naming these things off and I'm listening to it with, you know, kind of half-heartedly at first. And they, and one of the first things they said was a dynamic leader who claims to either be God or speak for God. So that kind of piqued my interest. Mm-hmm. And then another one was they claim that they need to um, relocate to a specific location where they're going to build up the church. They, and, and in my mind, I thought of, you know, Zion going, you know, building up Zion. That's right. kind of what, what happened. And then they said, um, another one is, they, have, they, they institute a strict moral code, but they allow themselves and a select few to break the moral code. Mm-hmm. Now, the church now would never fit that necessarily, but I'm thinking of Joseph Smith's time, you know, and I'm right. starting to check these boxes. Mm-hmm. And then it said, um, almost always they begin grooming the women, the young women, um, as sex objects or wives, multiple wives. Now I'm sure they had Mormonism in their group in, in that segment or that sample that they were looking at. So that may have been, you know, they, we may have played a big part in that being one of the reasons, one of the, the points, but I think there are other cults that have done the same thing. There are actually many, many others that have done the same thing. And usually they get cut off or terminated in some way before they age or mature to the point that the LDS church has and left it in yes. their history. Yes. So exactly. So, you know, I'm thinking here's Brigham Young. He's hauling everyone off to points, you know, places unknown where they know they can practice their religion um, without anybody bugging them, anybody even knowing what's going on. They're out here in the Salt Lake Valley, which is you know, a desert and there's nobody here and he can pretty much set it up any way he wants. And he's not going to hear anything for a long time. And he doesn't until Utah decides they want to become a state. 
right? And then all of a sudden, wait a minute, the, 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 all these people living in Utah are practicing polygamy? That's not legal. And that's, you know, that's unconstitutional. And so now their back's up against the wall. And, and, and so, you know, magically God says, oh, guess what? We're not going to do polygamy anymore. We've got enough people. We don't need to keep, keep this polygamy thing going. It served its purpose. It's time to end. And so conveniently, you know, we get the manifesto. So in my mind, I'm checking the boxes and I'm, I'm just listening to this TV com- you know, program thinking that's Joseph Smith. That's, that's Mormonism. Holy crap. This is, are we a cult? So those thoughts are going through my head. And, and at the same time, I'm thinking, no, we're not. Look at us now. I mean, maybe at the beginning, it kind of looked like that. But look at, you know, church is so, so different now from what it used to be. And, you know, it's good. It's doing so much good in the world. And all my friends, we're not culty people. We're not doing weird stuff. And then I thought, well, you know, the temple ceremony was pretty weird back in the day when they had the penalties, that was pretty creepy. It's and still kind of weird today. What's that? It's still kind of weird today. It, it, yeah. Well, I haven't been since they changed it the most recent time, but, um, you know, the prayer circle was kind of creepy. The veiling of the faces. I mean, this all kind of reminded me of really weird movies that I had seen, you know, where there was like clannish and kind of, I don't know. It just didn't, it, it felt weird. And I was not, I was not excited to go back. Right. So it sounds like there's a lot of things and a lot of issues that you've been uh, subjected to or exposed to during the course of your life. But during the, the majority of your life, you've just sort of put them to the side or ignored yeah. them, put them on the shelf, so to speak, right. and continued to press on as a faithful, outwardly observant yes. Mormon. Yes. Although I've always been outspoken and I've always said, brought up difficult issues in class. Um, and, and people kind of, you know, some people like that. They enjoyed the conversations. Others would, would not and not participate. But, you know, I always had questions that were a little bit, um, fringy. So anyway, these things are, are starting to percolate. And, uh, something about a podcast. Is that where you're going to a friend sharing a podcast with you? Yes. That's where I'm going. Okay. Sorry. So now we're in January of this year and a friend of mine says, you know, my boyfriend keeps sending me this stuff to listen to. She goes, would you listen to this and tell me what you think? And so I did. And And you had not been listening to any podcast prior to January of 2019, correct? Correct. I did not even know they existed. There is a whole segment of the church that does not even know this stuff exists. Trust me, because I've been one of them for a long time. Um, I think it was one of, it might've been one of John DeLynn's. I think it was. I'm, I'm real fuzzy on what it was. All I know is that I listened and I went, oh no, because it was the same stuff Dan used to talk about. Same stuff, the polygamy stuff. And uh, I think it had something to do with, I don't know. It might, it might not have been the book of Abraham. I can't, I can't remember. I, definitely polygamy, which is a big, you know, that, that definitely, that catches my attention immediately. And it's kind of a zinger. So I, and I clicked on, oh, and here's another one you can read. And here's another one. Here's another, you know, there's a list that comes up on your phone when you're listening. Oh, I could listen to, you know, episode two and episode 10, 20. So I started just clicking on all of these and listening to them. And literally within one week of doing that, oh, and I got my hands on the CES letter 
um, actually just the audible version of it. I listened to that and it was like, I just said, I'm done. That's it. That is it. That's the last straw. This is bullshit. I mean, that's, that's the word that came to mind. And, and I haven't been a swearing person my whole life, <laughs> but that word was the only word that could come to mind about what was, what I was hearing about the church, the, not the the stuff I was hearing was bullshit, but that the church and what they had done, I felt lied to. I felt deceived. I felt like um, betrayed. I felt like a fool. I think that was the biggest. It was like, I have been a fool for this religion. I have believed it with my whole heart and soul. I have sacrificed for it. I have given up all my favorite things for it. I have lived a, you know, I have tried so hard to keep the commandments and beat myself up when I didn't and all of it. And I thought I have been duped and it was really upsetting. You know, I think that happens to a lot of people. I know my younger brother, John, he, he actually transitioned several years before I did. And, uh, he was devastated, absolutely devastated by it. And, um, I know. And he, he went down to St. George to a, uh, a Mormon stories convention or something and spoke about his faith transition. And, um, no, no, it wasn't Mormon stories. Sorry. Sunstone. It was Sunstone. Hmm. And, uh, down there in St. George. So anyway, it was, it was difficult. And, um, it, but I didn't spend a lot of time, uh, grieving. I sort of went through that period quickly. I was listening because I work at home. I'm able, I have a pretty free schedule. Even while I'm working, I can listen to a podcast. And so I was binge binging the podcasts. Um, someone, one of my friends shared yours, um, RFM and, and Bill Real. You guys were together on the first one that I listened to. You were both speaking. And then I started listening to Bill's podcast. And then I started listening, you know, Almost Awakened, just all of them. I, I um, John DeLynn's podcast. And then I started listening to uh, um, Dan Vogel. And I don't know if you know about him, but he's, he's, he's a brilliant um, scholar, uh, former LDS and knows it inside and out. And um, he had so many good points about all of these topics, all of the topics. And so when I went to the gospel topic essays and read them all, um, so you, you read know, all the essays yeah, on the church website. Yeah. What was that like? That was a, it was a frustrating experience for me because I felt like they weren't being, they still weren't being totally transparent. Yes, they were making an effort, but they were slanting it so hard in the, you know, pro-faith direction that it felt manipulative to me. Was and I, it, sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, was there anything about the fact that the things that you had been told decades ago were anti-Mormon lies? Yeah. That are, go ahead with that. Yeah. That was infuriating. All these things that were, they told us, oh no, those are, that's all anti-Mormon. Don't read that stuff. Don't go looking into what, you know, the, the, um, oh gosh, what's their names? The, the, um, Tanners. Tanners. Don't ever read what they write. Those are evil, awful antichrists, you know, these were the things we were told and not just by our local leaders. We're talking up, you know, the pulpit. They were telling us to stay away from anti-Mormon literature and only read the correlated 
uh, production of the church, only, only that. And, and I, you know, I kind of went along with that. I was like, yeah, these guys, they just want to tear us down. They can't leave us alone because we're true. They have to pull us down. Well, now the church is admitting all of this stuff, albeit sort of whitewashed admitting they're still having to admit some of this stuff because it's out there and they know they got to deal with it now. And it just seems like, you know, this is such a piss poor, not to coin a phrase of yours, Bill, <laughs> a piss poor excuse for being transparent. It's, it's a lame attempt. They need to fix it. It's, it's, I even, you know, as a member of the church, my whole life, I can see right through it. I know what they're doing. They're trying to make it palatable for everybody so that they don't lose their faith. But you know what? They're going to lose so many faithful members because of this, because they have denied it, denied it, denied it, denied it. And now they're saying, oops, actually, yes, (laughs) those things did happen. But hey, you know, we're good. It's all good. Don't worry about it. No, anybody with half a brain can see right through that. So it's been this past year that you've gone through this transition, Lila. Has this impacted your family in any way? Yeah, I have seven children. Most of them are adults. Um, they're all TBM, except for I have one 21-year-old 20, daughter who has never been, act- well, She right around young women, she bailed. She was like, I don't believe this stuff. She was out. She just wasn't, she just wouldn't go anymore. Um, which was very frustrating for her dad, especially. And then um, I have a 16-year-old son and all the older kids, I have kind of, you know, I've let them all know sort of where I'm at without giving a lot of detail. Um, I've told them that I am transitioning away from the church and that at some point I will probably no longer be a member at all. Um, I've told them that what some of my struggles are, um, most of them have been very patient and have listened to me um, without becoming upset or angry. Nobody's shed any tears so far. Um, They've just been, okay, well, you know, we understand uh, you're going through something. My oldest son said, you know, we all go through little times when we doubt. He goes, you're just going through a time, (laughs) a doubting time. You know, he goes, I, I'm sure you'll come through it and you'll be fine. You know, mom, we love you. you we trust you. It's going to be okay. Um, I didn't have the heart to say, no, I'm really not going. I'm not coming back. That's not happening. But, you know, eventually they'll all see that. My oldest daughter was very cool about it. Very cool. She said, mom, most of my friends who go to church are the same as you. They don't really believe it. But they like it because it helps them, you know, helps them live their lives in a good way, helps them stay away from a lot of dangerous things, and it helps their kids. So they are worried about what happens to to my youngest son, who's 16. They're worried about my influence on him now. Well, this brings us kind of to the concluding question that I have for you, Lila. Mm -hmm. You reached out to Bill and to me basically just to say that you're a listener. It was... uh, And then I reached back out to you and asked you if you would be agreeable to be interviewed. You said yes. And at first you were concerned about using your real name, about talking about your dad using his real name. But then Mm -hmm. quickly thereafter, you said, oh, let's just go ahead and we'll just use real names. Um, How is it that you've come to this point where you are willing to 
go public under your real name with your attitudes about the church as and know that your family is very likely going to hear about it. And what do you expect to happen as a result? In other words, how is it that you've come to this point where not only do you feel this way yourself, but now you're willing to be public about it? Wow. That's a, that's a good question. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with um, there's been a lot of upheaval, upheaval in my life over the past uh, few years. And this is just to me, this is just another step in my transformation. And I know that it's going to upset people. I know it's going to upset my, my TBM friends. I have a, quite a big group of friends that are very staunch believers. And when they get wind of this, I know they're going to be shocked. I think my children might be disappointed that I went public. Um, I don't expect, you know, that a lot, I, I kind of, I kind of, ex, I kind of know that I'm going to get some flack for it and I'm ready for that. Um, my Bishop, I haven't been going to this ward that I live in because we just moved in January and my old Bishop thought we were going to the new ward and my new Bishop thought we were still going to our old ward. <laughs> so we were able to fly under the radar for a while, but then, um, recently my son let the cat out of the bag to the old Bishop that we hadn't been going to church. And I think he contacted the new Bishop. And so the new Bishop gave me a call and said, Hey, um, I was wondering if I could come over with your old Bishop and come over and have a talk with you. And I just, you know, I, I just nipped it right there. I said, no, you don't need to come over and talk to me. I said, I know where this is going and I know what you're going to try to do. And it, you, you would be wasting your time. I said, I, I have no ill will against you or anyone, any member of the church. I love my LDS friends. I love my old, my LDS bishopric were great. I love my leaders. They were awesome people. I have nothing against the people, generally speaking. I know there are some that, you know, maybe are difficult, but for the most part, everybody, I just adore. It's not them. It's the, it's the church. It's the, up the, the leadership. It is this whole, um, it's, that's what's problematic. And so I said, this is not about, you know, me being disaffected because my feelings were hurt by somebody or, you know, I just want to go smoke and drink and have sex. You know, I said that that's not it. And he said, so, well, then what is it? And I said, you know, have you read the gospel topic essays on the church website? And he said, no, I haven't. <laughs> and I thought, well, there you go. I said, you should probably read those being there on our, our own church website. You should maybe read those. And then I said, you might have a hard time finding him, but you can put it in the search bar and it'll come up um, or you can Google it and it'll come up. But I said, you should read those first of all. And then secondly, and John DeLynn had interviewed uh, the author of a book called Bridges, Ministering to Those Who Question by David Osler. Right. And he had interviewed this guy and, you know, who is this, you know, obviously it's a stalwart member who had written this book. And I actually... I listened to it and I thought that guy could do some good. He actually could help. That book could help. So I suggested that my bishop get that book and read it. And he said, where is it? Where can I find it? And I found him a copy at uh, Deseret Book here. And there was only one copy left. I said, I think you should read this because you're going to be dealing with this more and more and more. 
And he said, you're right. I already am. I've already, I'm already seeing this happen. And uh, he goes, I, I need to um, understand better what's going on. So I think he, you know, I think he has the book and I hope he's reading the book. I hope that it's helpful to him um, just sort of to open up, to get them on the same page with what's going on right now. Because I have a feeling, I mean, there are lots of people I'm hearing about it all the time now. Um, people that have left or are leaving or are transitioning and they're struggling because they've got their spouse who's still a member or their kids who are still active. And how do you do this? How do you do this? We need to, I mean, you guys are doing a lot of good by the, the podcasts are lifesavers. I'm telling you, I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't had them to listen to just to give me, keep me sane all day long. Um, and I've talked to all my friends that are transitioning. I have a group. We have a group that meets twice a month. Um, they're all women. There's just, um, I think there's only six of us now, but, um, we all have just used those podcasts as lifelines. So I want to appeal to both of you to please keep doing it. You probably get sick of it. I I can imagine you're sick to death of it, (laughs) doing it all the time, but it's, you're doing a huge service to what, to the people that are going through this. And I think they're going to continue to go through it. I think that it's just getting going. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the kind words. I plan on continuing as long as I am able. Good. Bill? Yeah. So I've been doing this eight years now. And and when it comes to the Mormon stuff, I am tired. I am. I I feel like I've covered every major historical obstacle and I'm and I'm sitting on the sideline, and, and if something you know significant happens that I feel like I can contribute a unique perspective to or speak to in a way that others go like, yeah, I couldn't have said it that way, and I'm glad you said it, great. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, you mentioned Almost Awake, and that's, that's where I'm spending my time now. I'm, I feel a lot healthier yeah. keeping kind of a safe distance from Mormonism and only poking in when it, when it feels like I can contribute and uh, do so in a healthy way. But I have no intention of stop podcasting. And I certainly tend to, I'm certainly going to continue to speak on deconstructing systems and what it means to wake up from those. So I I, I plan to continue. That's, that's really important because Mormonism is really just one of many systems that are unhealthy. And, and you're, what you're doing is, is helping us, giving us tools to do that on many, you know, in, in other areas too. And it's helpful. So keep doing that. I, I had one last little thought and I, I kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but as I'm listening to this entire conversation and hearing your story about your dad and his time as a general authority and how he was at home and, and then talking about all these other kind of parts of this story, mm-hmm. it, it strikes me. And again, I kind of mentioned earlier, it strikes me as, there, there are certain systems that are really unhealthy and it's not just religious. There's political systems, there's other clubs and groups. And anytime people get together, unhealthiness tends to show up because us humans all have shadow and, and with Mormonism and other high demand fundamentalist religions, there's this cover given to its members and authority that they're able to be unhealthy and to kind of hide from it. Yeah. And and as I hear the story about your dad, your dad honestly reminds me a ton of myself. Um, 
having a certain level of charisma, being friendly and nice and funny. And then in my darkest moments at home, when, when I feel turmoil inside because it's too loud or somebody's fighting or somebody made a bad choice and suddenly I feel all distorted inside. And the way I get control back of the situation is to yell and to scream and to ground and to punish and, and doing all those things. I mean, that, that sounds like your dad's personality. Like he was a good guy. And yet when he felt turmoil inside, he acted out in unhealthy ways. And, and yet here's this system that gives incredible cover to its leaders, both at the general level as well as local leadership, just having the priesthood, just being a male gives you cover in this system. Mm-hmm. And, and I worry so much about all the hurt that's done by those of us in some sort of authority position, again, even just having priesthoods is sufficient to do this. Uh, being in some type of authority position, being able to treat people in unhealthy ways, and this system gives us cover to never be accountable to that, uh, that struck me to, to me as one of the most important kind of themes going on as we had this conversation. I just, I appreciated being able to sit in on this and, and poke a few questions here or there, but generally just to sit back and kind of hew, hear how the human story works itself out in, in this kind of a religious system. It gives them amazing cover. It gives them the ultimate cover, which is you can do whatever you want and you're still going to make it to the celestial kingdom. Right. I've had the second anointing. So yeah. the conversation stops here. Yeah. That is, I mean, that grants you the freedom to behave any awful way you want to, and you're still going to make it. That was the way Joseph Smith behaved too. He, he, he was exempt. He could do whatever he wanted to do. And it was okay because God commanded it, you know, that whether he was lying, whether he was, you know, cheating on Emma or whatever he was doing, he could do it. Even I've heard worse stories and it was all for God and it was all okay because he had his calling election made sure. That is a very, very dangerous. I mean, I'll, I'll give Hitler that, and it would, would probably have even been, maybe he already thought he did. I don't know, but I'm telling you, I feel like it's extremely dangerous and unhealthy. Yes. I agree. Yeah, and it seems to come from three different tangents. One is the the perception. Like, we are taught to perceive, even like a local uh, bishop, or even my dad, and of course, I'm a, I'm a converse. I don't mean my situation specifically, but in an LDS home, like, my dad has the priesthood he interacts with God and, and his job is to be a, uh, be responsible as an authority over top of the rest of us in this home. Like that gives cover, right? Like there's this idea that we perceive people in leadership positions and that leadership is directly connected to uh, God himself. And hence we, we need to see ourselves in a subservient position to these, these people, even our own father. And so that's one. Two is that, then that person gets to give cover by saying they hold the priesthood or they're some type of authority. So when something unhealthy happens, they get to step in and go, you cannot criticize me. I, I have authority. And then another layer of that is the leadership of the church then telling us that message. Elder Oaks, for example, saying you cannot criticize the leaders of the church, even if that criticism is true. From all directions, there is this unhealthy cloud that we're all living in where if anybody in authority even the father in our home does something deeply unhealthy. Our job is to keep our mouth shut, to pretend everything is going well and to treat it as if it is. It's a dictatorship. I mean, that's, that's what it is. We are living in a modern day 
religious dictatorship. Yeah. We're not allowed to criticize. We just have to bow our heads and say yes, literally. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Well, I tell you what, that time has come when unfortunately we have to conclude this interview with Lila. Bill, thanks for being with us today. Lila, thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed under your real name and share some real life experiences from your life and where you are now. And I wish you all the very best Thanks. in your future. And hopefully- Thanks so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. And hopefully your friends are really TBM so they don't even know this podcast exists. <laughs> Thanks, RFM, for putting this together. You bet. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.